Coach Considerations from the UKSCA Views and Opinions from the World of Strength and Conditioning The idea today is to sort of talk around blood flow restriction training and how we can potentially apply it in the practice. So the aim is to sort of give you a bit of an overview of some of the things where I think we can apply it in the sport. Okay, there's multiple different ways that we can use blood flow restriction and there's multiple different ways that people are using it currently, but I think there's certain things that we potentially, the research is at a, at a certain level and we need to potentially move it on and start applying it in. Now, I guess a bit of background to me, we've been doing this research now since 2006. So it's been around for quite a while, but it's taken quite a long time to sort of get a lot of standardization across protocols, how we use it, and the best ways to apply it in different settings. So hopefully from today's talk, I'll give you a bit of an overview of how we can do that. Um, at the end, please ask me any questions you have. Come and speak to me afterwards if there's anything you, you're unsure of. So I always like to start this type of session off with what blood flow restriction is, because I think there's multiple different analogies out there, and there's multiple different methods that we can use. And I think a lot of people go down the, the sort of main area of focus, but there's multiple different ways that we can actually apply this into practice, and there's different, four different modes of application. The first is this idea of resistance exercise, and this is probably the most common, the most well-researched. I'm probably not going to cover too much of this today, actually, because I think there's more areas that we can sort of go into in detail, but this is the most well-known. Um, probably gives the most bang for our buck in that we know it works really well. We know we get the adaptations that we will talk about later on. So people always gravitate towards it, and that's the first thing they always go to, just because they know it's effective. The benefits of blood flow restriction are we're using very light loads, generally 30% of your one repetition max, which opens up certain opportunities and avenues for when we can apply this method. The key thing is, when we're talking about restricting blood flow for resistance exercise, we're talking about partial restriction. Okay, So we're not talking about fully stopping all blood flow. We're talking about letting some blood flow into the working muscle, but we're preventing venous return. So we're preventing blood flow returning back to the heart, which is then what's causing things like fatigue and other factors, which then allows us to create that adaptation. Okay? I'll talk about this in a few more slides, but the way we determine our pressure in a lot of our studies is what known as limit-occlusive pressure. And if we think of the minimum pressure required to stop all blood flow into that working muscle. Okay? And if we classify that as 100%, if we work below that percentage, we're guaranteeing blood flows going into the muscle, as I said, but not returning. So for resistance exercise, we generally use 40 to 80% of our limb occlusive pressure. We've then got endurance or aerobic exercise, very, very similar, low intensity, generally around sort of 50% of VO2 max. So very low intensity, intensity, walking, cycling, any modality really that you can apply with the cuffs on. Um, again, partial restriction, 40 to 80%. I'll cover this in a little bit more detail as we go through the talk because I think this is an area that there really is a bit of growth in and I think there's lots of opportunity for you guys as practitioners to start applying this into your practice and think about where you actually do this. The research probably needs to catch up a little bit but there is a lot of research currently in this specific area. Another way we're gonna look at it is around this idea of a passive application. Okay, so what we're doing here is we're applying blood flow restriction passively with no exercise whatsoever, okay? 
You might have heard of a term before called ischemic preconditioning, which we would use in the surgical world and in the medical world, and it's exactly the same. Um, the difference here is that we're using full restriction, so 100% of your limb occlusive pressure, completely stopping blood flow for intermittent periods, usually five minutes or so, with three to five minutes recovery. We can use this for performance enhancement before exercise, which I'm not going to really cover today. There's lots of research out there on ischemic preconditioning for performance. Having done a lot of the work in it, I'm not overly convinced myself that there really is a true effect. There's a lot of messiness with regards to the research, pressures that are applied and so on. So I'm going to stay clear of that today. Again, I can answer questions about it later, but I don't really see it having much of a practical application before exercise for performance enhancement at this stage. Where there is some potential is around recovery following exercise, so using this passive mode of application to help your athletes recover quicker and faster, which will allow, hopefully, be beneficial, obviously, from a in-season and other periods of, of time. The final mode of application is around electrical stimulation. And again, not really the focus of today's talk, but just to let you aware, but it's similar to the resistance exercise in that we're using low-intensity um, stimulation. We have partial restriction again. Probably more around the injury and rehab model is where it really fits. Obviously, you're taking the, um, the brain out of the stimulation. You're putting electrical stimulation on the muscle, contracting. So in theory, it's doing exactly the same as a resistance exercise. And again, some really nice work coming out from a clinical perspective um, in recent years around that mode. So I mentioned this idea of pressure. Now, with blood flow restriction, we're applying tourniquets to the upper parts of the, the most proximal end of the limbs. Okay, so we are limited. We can only use it in the legs and the arms. Now, how do we go about pressure? If I think about when I first started this research a long time ago, we were just pie in the sky, picking pressures out from previous research and so on. And that makes it very difficult to compare studies and then actually makes it really difficult to apply it into practice. And I think if you look at what practitioners have been doing in the past, think of some of the early work that people like Ben Rosenblatt was doing at the EIS, they were setting pressures based on arbitrary pressures, um, and they had an upper limit of where that sat. But obviously, there's lots of issues with that. If we look at the literature, we're between anywhere between 80 to 300 millimeters of mercury in the pressures that people are using. One of the issues with that is the different cuff widths that are being used, anywhere between three, which are sort of more like the katsu type cuffs of the original area, up to 20 centimeters. The main reason with that was because there was no dedicated people on the market or making blood flow restriction devices. So we were just using whatever cuffs we could get access to and so on. So some of the very big, wide blood pressure cuffs, some thinner ones. It just depended what people could get access to, and that would then impact that. But what we know is that there's an inverse relationship between the width of the cuff and the pressure that you then need to apply to fully restrict blood flow. So if you have a wider cuff, you need less pressure to fully restrict blood flow. If you have a thinner cuff, you need a higher pressure. So that's where the standardization comes in. And we took it from the surgical idea about this limb occlusive pressure. It's that minimum pressure to fully stop all blood flow into the working muscle. We can measure that manually via Doppler, or we can use certain tourniquet systems, which are more expensive, which have it automated into them. Um, what this does is this allows standardization across the board. And it means that even if you move from cuff to cuff, if you're you know, working with different athletes and working across, as long as you're setting a percentage of that limb occlusive pressure, well, then you're working at the same relative intensity. Okay, so it's just like you would set a percentage of one rep max, you're setting a percentage of pressure. You can see at the bottom here, I've done some work around 
how you actually measure limb occlusive pressure. And what actually happens if you go from land down to seated to standing, obviously the pressure increases. So consider that whenever you're, you're setting the initial pressure because if you do everything lying down instead of pressure and then you do a squat type exercise, the pressure difference between what you need to restrict blood flow is going to be slightly different. So you need to think about how you actually um, apply that pressure. So what happens during BFR? So this is a, a nice slide that I always try to show around the idea of what's going on within the muscle itself. So this is just um, near, so oxygenation of the muscle itself. Um, and it's 20% of one rep max with and without BFR. The dashed line is our low intensity exercise and the solid line is our BFR. And if we just look really, really simply, if we look at the standard low intensity exercise, we start our exercise, it's been zeroed. As we start exercising, we get a decrease in oxygenation. You see that we fluctuation for each contraction. When we stop exercising, it comes back up to resting levels, actually get an overextension there, we get a hyperemia. It's because we've got more oxygen within the blood. Recover, start our second set, again comes down again when we stop back up. The magnitude's exactly the same between sets, it just hasn't been reset. So that's what you see when you do any type of normal exercise. If we do heavy load, same thing happens, maybe just the, um, the repetitions are less because you're doing more load. If we do BFR, we inflate the cuff, we get a slight decrease at the beginning, do our repetitions, once we stop the exercise, because we do not release the cuff, you can see it gradually comes back up. But by the time we're starting our second set, we're about 20% less oxygen within the muscle for us then to start our second set. And that's when the fatigue starts to kick in. So the first set is almost just to deoxygenate the muscle. And then um, it makes exercise that much harder. And that's essentially all BFR is doing. It's making exercise harder. It's not a magic pill. It's not a magic bullet. It's not something that, you know, is... Um, we haven't seen before. This is just making exercise a little bit harder. Okay? Um, so I'm not standing up here today to say this is the only way you should train. This is for short, certain periods of training windows, and that's where it fits. It doesn't fit an all-year-round program, in my opinion. When we stop exercising, it comes back up to resting levels when you release the cuff. Obviously, if we're doing three or four sets, that will continue. So, as I said, I'm not going to go through the full... Here's all the different types of things that happen within BFR because I've got a limited amount of time, but I'm going to sort of cover some of the opportunities, I think, for BFR within athletic performance and within athletes, okay? The first one is around injury and rehab, and this is going to be quite short because I don't really want it to be the main focus. It's where a lot of the research is. It's probably the, the most optimal place for blood flow restriction, okay? So if we're to think about an athletic performance model and we're to think about where it fits, this is the area where it probably gets most bang for its buck. When people are load compromised, they can't lift heavy, early stages of injury, rehab, this is an ideal tool in that situation, okay? Because you can't load. This is the problem that we see. You can see here is after surgery, you can see the atrophy that's occurring on the limb that we just had surgery on. The key thing is the loss of muscle mass, the loss of strength is rapid and it's substantial, okay? We're talking anywhere between 0.8% muscle loss per day over a five to 12 day period. So very, very rapid um, loss. Now you have to think about from a rehab perspective, and that's gonna take us a certain amount of time in order to regain that muscle mass back and strength back, which we want to sort of focus on other things long-term. And if we're still chasing muscle mass months later, then that's a problem for us. And we know from the research 
that a lot of the times we are still chasing muscle mass and strength gains really late in that rehab stage because people haven't been probably doing stuff early enough. So the BFR in this regard is something that we can implement in. Early stage, we're seeing lots of potential work with it or lots of potential and um, good work from it um, for many different types of injuries, okay, from ACL injuries right through to um, just acute injuries that we would see with our, our teams. So these are the types of adaptations that we would expect them to see and you expect to get if we're using this within um, a rehab setting um, or just in general, to be honest. But you can see here, we've got someone who's limb um, load compromised. And these are some of the adaptations that we see. So we see changes in muscle hypertrophy, really large, between 10 and 40% of increase within two to 16 weeks. Okay, um, And that's pretty consistent across the board from a, from a research perspective. And the, the main area where BFR sort of first came into is around that idea of muscle hypertrophy and increasing those gains. Um, essentially what's happening, you've seen in the previous slides, we're creating a hypoxic environment within the muscle. Okay, we're reducing the blood flow because the, the tourniquet is on the, the muscle itself. That leads to things like metabolite accumulation, which is not causing fatigue, it's just a, an indicator of hypoxic, a hypoxic environment, an ischemic environment, reduced blood flow. We see things like increased protein synthesis and increased things like satellite cell proliferation, all of which are going to be important to help that drive that growth process in the early stages of rehab. We also see improvements in strength. Again, pretty standard across the board, 5 to 100%. That can really depend just on where the starting process is. If you've got an athlete, obviously, and they've had a substantial loss, they're going to get a greater gain back and so on. So from a percentage perspective, it's all relative. Um, but we see those increases across the board, across different types of modalities of um, strength measurements. Um, we get an increased AMG recruitment during the exercise itself. So if you think of the second, third, fourth sets that we would do at those low loads, we are recruiting, as you start to fatigue, you're recruiting those faster twitch fibers. So we see growth in type two fibers. We see increase in EMG recruitment, and that's what's driving some of the strength and the um, muscle hypertrophy adaptations that we observe with this type of training. And we also see vascular adaptations. I guess when we first started doing this work, um, this is probably one of the biggest concerns around, are we actually going to damage the vasculature system? Are we going to cause problems? We did some work in my PhD around blood flow changes, and um, we've seen big improvements in reactive hyperemia. Um, we've seen changes in arterial diameter size, flow-mated dilatation. It's all being driven by two things. That hypoxic environment improves things like um, vascular endothelial growth factor, so increases the number of capillaries within the muscle. Also, we get an increase in shear stress. So as we release the cuff at the end, we get a rush of blood, through, blood flow through those vessels, and therefore that then leads to an adaptation. And I guess it's like anything within the body and how we respond. If we restrict something, the body normally learns to adapt, and then we get an adaptation from it. So that's where we see that with the BFR. So we're seeing, a, from a rehab and injury perspective, these are the types of changes you'd expect to see, and we're seeing these pretty consistently across the board. A few years ago, we put together a bit of a, a group of researchers all over the world to try and come up with some guidelines. Um, I'll show you the link for the paper at the end. It's free, open access, and I would probably recommend you go and have a look at it if you are interested in applying BFR. It's got a lot of stuff around safety as well, which I'm not going to cover today, but there's things there which would... It's a good starting place to sort of think about, but we, we tried to put together an idea of what constitutes guidelines for this type of training. Um, and you can see when we're talking about resistance exercise, 
from frequency we can do it two or three times a week up to one to two times per day, which I'll discuss in a couple of minutes. Usually 20 to 30 percent, 40 percent one rep max. 30 percent seems to be the sweet spot. Five to ten minutes per exercise, but with recovery then in between. So keeping the cuff inflated during, release it at the end. Um, the Repetitions-wise, the standard scheme is a 30, 15, 15, and 15 scheme. It's 75 reps. Don't ask me where I came from. Nobody really knows. Um, it seems to be the optimal volume. If we double the volume, we don't get any greater adaptations. You can go to failure, but we find that that's a really simple way to do it from the beginning. Um, and we can then progress pretty quickly from that. So I mentioned there the idea of frequency. And the reason I did that is around, so there's a potential here with regards to periods of microdosing um, and how we can apply BFR in. And there's been numerous studies, mainly from some of the Scandinavian groups who've done a lot of this work. This is from Nielsen back in 2012. I guess one of the benefits of BFR, because of the low load, we're essentially decreasing the intensity of the exercise because we're bringing the actual load that we lift down. Okay? Um, but it's still hard work and you still feel it. And what that means is that we can then use it more frequently and get a greater recovery so we can actually do that. But we can only do that for short periods of time. Okay? So this is the work by Nielsen, and basically they did 23 training sessions within 21 days. Almost a five days on, two days off model for a period of time. We've got type one, type two fibers. This is a BFR control group. This is muscle biopsies, and you can see eight days in to the, the 21 days, They've really maximized all their gains within eight days. This is a 30, about 31, 38% increase. Maintained three days post and 10 days post. You can see there's a slight increase in the mid for the control group. That's just a um, increase of swelling within the, the tissue as well. And you can see that's went back to rest and level, so it's not a real change in that regard. Type two fiber is exactly the same. What's really interesting is we're getting those gains within eight days. So even though they went for 21 days, we think we can do short period, short blocks of seven days, eight days, high frequency, and then a week or two off. And there's been some research to show that's a really nice model within powerlifters who are using it, where they will basically, almost on their deload weeks, they're using BFR to actually um, improve outcomes and performance in that regard. So when they're decreasing the intensity, they're adding BFR into their sessions, which is then leading to um, more gains on top of what they would normally achieve. The the benefit of this is it's dependent on where you, where you see this fit. So obviously from a microdosing perspective, if you've got some tissue conditioning you need to work on, certain aspects of performance, that you, you know, there's say a muscle group that needs work and so on, there's, there's times when you can apply this and you can put this into practice. This is limited though. You know, you're not going to get this continuously if you work twice a day for eight weeks. You know, the, the gains you can see are stopping after a week or two. So it is short blocks of time and then transitioning back into normal conventional training. Okay, this isn't supposed to be a long-term thing. We've done similar things um, in rehab as well. Um, see Pete Laddell in the room, we've done stuff with the military um, with a high frequency. So again, if you apply them this short, sharp block of rehab, um, we can get some of these gains very rapidly, which then allow you to then transition back into other modes of rehabilitation. Because of that, I guess that recovery that allows you then to, the intensity is less, so you can, you can do more sessions. It also ties in around things like fixture congestion, travel, and so on, where we can start to use this, take this away with us, still get a stimulus from our training when we potentially don't have access to certain facilities. 
Okay, so there's opportunities, again, which allows us to, to take the practicality where we get the stimulus and we maybe don't have the, you know, the weight room and so on that we would potentially usually have. So other ways to think about how you would use it. Probably the biggest area that we've been really researching the last few years is around this idea of management of pain and niggles. This is probably the one area where we're talking a lot to, when we sort of consult with organizations and clubs and so on, they're sort of getting the most interest from, um, and it's being widely used with regards to, from Premier League football right through to, you know, NBA, NFL teams and so on. Now, there's been a series of studies. When we first started doing this again, most of the work we did was in healthy people, okay? So all we ever got back was, this is sore. It actually hurts us when we do it because it's an intense exercise. So that was the, nobody was even thinking about, well, what effect does this have on people who are in pain? Okay, so we were always thinking about healthy, oh, it's actually quite tough. People might not want to do it. Athletes are completely different. They like that sensation. They like that burning feeling. So they actually really gravitate towards BFR because they think this is a, um, a really good thing to do. Just have to be careful with your athletes, obviously. They do have a bit of competition in them. And the reason I sort of say about this idea of setting standards and so on, how we do BFR, is because they would generally tend to try and compete against each other, whether that's with more pressure, you know, more repetitions and so on, because they're just trying to compete. And different clubs and organizations, when you bring them to the international level, again, are competing against each other, saying, well, I do this and we do this. And there's a lot of sort of competition, which then can take you off message and take you off what you're trying to achieve with the, with the technique. So when we started then doing the clinical work and starting to look at the rehab types of work, then we started to see, well, there's some really good responses from pain. So um, Rod Whiteley's group out in Aspatar done some work with Caracas around um, patellofemoral pain, knee pain, and using BFR to reduce pain immediately after exercise. We then found we had a, this is Luke Hughes, who was one of the PhD students, um, we did an ACL paper, or an ACL rehab study, where we compared BFR to normal conventional training. Um, and this is basically on the left-hand side here. This is session knee pain score, so knee pain itself. Um, and on this side, it's knee pain 24 hours after. Okay? Now, if we look at how the muscle felt during BFR, it was higher in the blood flow restriction group compared to conventional training. But knee pain, which we've just had surgery on, this is the first session after surgery, BFR has a reduced knee pain compared to the heavier load group. And what was really interesting was this was reduced at 24 hours compared to the other group. And if we look at normal exercise-induced hypalgesia pain responses, they normally last about 45 minutes or so. And we're seeing this consistently as lasting for about um, 24 hours or so. So we're starting to potentially see a windows of how we can apply BFR from a pain perspective. In more recent times, we've decided to look at this a little bit more and started to see if we can optimize this a little bit. We have dominant quadriceps, this is pressure pain threshold, so just how much pain you can take. So the higher that pressure, the more pain you can take. This is in healthy people. This is non-dominant quads, dominant biceps, and non-dominant trapezius. So we're looking at a, a localized effect and a systemic effect, okay? We've got a low load group, BFR at 40% LOP, 80% LOP, and a high load group. And we have pre, five minutes post-exercise, and 24 hours post-exercise. Now across the board, every type of exercise reduces or improves um, pressure pain threshold. So we get a, an improved pain tolerance level, no matter what exercise you do. Okay, that's just a given. So that's, you know, if you have someone who's in pain, get them to do some exercise, pain will start to subside 
acutely after exercise. What's really interesting is that the gains were better in the BFR group and most actually only at the 24 hour period were the, the gains or improvements at, um, in the BFR group and even more so at the 80%. So we, we see more improvement with higher pressures, kind of makes sense, there's this conditioned pain modulation, we're restricting blood flow, we're going through more pain during the exercise, that causes um, greater um, improvements in pain tolerance after the exercise for up to 24 hours. We get the systemic effect across the board for the five minute period, across all the different muscles, again for all the different exercises, better in the BFR groups, but not, um, not for 24 hours, so it's local, so the exercise limb is the one that gets most of the, the benefit from it, um, so that's another important thing to consider when we're, we're looking at this. We've recently finished this up, we've done this in endurance exercise also, very similar results. Um, we are getting a, an increase in pain tolerance levels with aerobic exercise with BFR. Um, not so much with the, the higher intensity. One thing to notice when you're doing aerobic exercise is that you maybe don't get as much. Um, you can't really go with those high pressures when you're doing the aerobic work because you're doing it for a more, uh, more sustained time compared to the seven, eight minutes you do resistance exercise, you're going for 20 minutes or so with aerobic. So you just can't take the pain for that period of time. But we're seeing that. And it's essentially what's happened is we're seeing lots of teams and organizations using this with regards to management of players throughout the season, whether that's with just getting them on the training pitch, getting them on the pitch on a, on a weekend, um, being used heavily within things like the NBA in order to sort of just little niggles of, and patellofemoral pain and other things to get people going. One thing just to be wary, pain's there for a reason. And we have to be very careful that we're not just negating all this pain, just getting someone out because there's a chance that you could then injure them. So think carefully about how you're doing it, why you're doing it. Um, and you know, it's not just a matter of just throwing it in there again. Okay, aerobic conditioning is the, the other area I want to sort of talk about. And I think this is where there's probably, there's some research, not lots of research, but this is probably the area where there's gonna be a lot of growth in the next couple of years, just from knowing people who are doing the work in the area. But it's not a new idea, it's revisited. This is, you can see here, this is a, an old school from the 80s, um, early 90s, Carolyn Sundberg's group over in Sweden, um, where instead of using tourniquets, you use a pressurized um, chamber. So they're able to reduce the pressure and the blood flow into the muscle that way. Um, and what they, again, we, what we know is limitation of blood flow accelerates fatigue. Okay, that's the key driver again. Nice early study from Caroline's group, um, 45 minutes, 60 RPM for four weeks, four times a week. Very low pressure, only a 20% reduction in blood flow, 25% increase in time to exhaustion and VO2 peak in the exercise limb. Okay, so it's a very, very potent stimulus that we get adaptations in pretty quickly. Again, more recent studies. I guess where it's slightly changed is some of the other adaptations that we see. Um, this is some work from Abbey back in 2006 where they're just walking twice a day, um, six days a week for three weeks, short period of time, very, very low intensity, very low pace. But alongside aerobic benefits, they're also getting improvements in muscle size and volume and strength, which we wouldn't normally get with aerobic exercise, um, measured by MRI. I am not standing here today telling you if you put your elite athlete on a walking program with BFR, they're gonna get increased muscle size and strength. Okay, that's not what I'm doing here. But obviously you can imagine if they're deconditioned after injury and other, there's certain situations where it will play a role. Okay, and you will maybe be able to get, and we have done this with case studies with elite premiership footballers and so on, where we, we are seeing 
return of muscle mass and strength rapidly just by walking with BFR, no other exercise training. More recently, Danny Christensen's group over in um, Denmark have done a little bit of work. Again, they love this weird one leg exercise, one leg control type um, mode. 180 millimeters of mercury, so not a standardized pressure, which obviously means everyone's working slightly differently. But they used, we would normally say use very low intensity exercise, said under 50% VO2 max. They changed it slightly, but they did three periods, three by two minute intervals, at 60, 70, and 80% max aerobic power, with recovery in between, and they released the cuff in between. 23% improvement in the extensor performance, even the extensor endurance model. Um, and they reduced potassium release during intense exercise, which we know is important for repeated sprintability and performance and so on. So there's a lot of work in this area that's going on, and there's a lot of different adaptations that are there. And these are some of the adaptations you'd expect to see. This is from Jamie Burr's group over in Canada, some of the, the ideas of what we're seeing and how the mechanisms are actually working. But we're seeing pretty consistently improvements in VO2 max, time to exhaustion, time trial performance, and so on. We're seeing improved muscle redox and buffering capacity, oxidative, muscle oxidative capacity, and increased capillary network. Okay, all these things which are driving adaptations from an aerobic perspective. I said, we see small changes in aerobic or muscle size and small changes in strength. But again, that's going to be very dependent on who you're working with and that whatever stage they are within the season and so on. Um, so there's pretty consistent gains. But again, we need to look at a lot more detail of exactly what's happening here. And one of the reasons is there's loads of different modes that we can do. We pretty, have it, pretty much haven't nailed with regards to resistance exercise, the protocols we use and so on. But with, when it comes to the aerobic side of things, we're a little bit hit and miss. And you can see that at the top here. These are just some of the proposed ways. You've got continuous. So here's the intensity here just with exercise and then with the BFR. So your continuous walking, cycling, running type protocols. These obviously can be swapped out for any mode of exercise here. We have the idea where we would do sprints and then put the cuff on immediately after to sort of trap metabolites. It's a slightly different way of doing it. We would then have higher intensity intervals, a bit like that Christensen study. We're putting the cuff on, release it in between. So more aerobic type intervals. And then we have our, our, our standard walking protocols. Okay. If I'm totally honest, this is probably, this end here is probably one of the simplest ones here as well. The low intensity efforts seem to be where it is. Like that last paper I showed about Christensen, I would doubt if they would have got any more adaptations if they hadn't just decreased the intensity. Okay, we know that with the resistance exercise models, adding more load does not give you any more benefit. It actually sometimes makes it worse because you can't get the repetitions done. So it's not about just doing more and more and more. But you can see straight away here, there's a real issue here with regards to how we actually apply this. And I can't stand here today and tell you this is the best way to do it. We have some consensus, but there's not, a, there's not a right and wrong here at the minute within this. I think it will be clear in a few years, but it takes time for the, for the research to catch up. But from a model perspective, what we do know, and this saddle line's untrained and these dash lines are trained. This is just change in adaptations. We see a much more rapid increase in training adaptations with BFR aerobically than we do with normal aerobic training. Okay, and especially from a, again, you can use it from a more frequent, frequent perspective. But this, you can see this sort of mixture here of where this blurs out. It's because we don't really know anything past eight weeks. Okay? So we're, start, we're seeing that where we don't actually know if we continue this on for longer periods of time. We think it probably converges and comes back to, to where it should be. I'm a big proponent of, actually, from a BFR perspective, we should only really be using it for short blocks anyway. I don't think we need to use it all, round, all season round. I think we should be using it for short, sharp blocks with a specific adaptation in mind. And that's how we sort of... Um, adjust it and, and push it through. 
Again, from a conditioning or from an aerobic perspective, very, very similar, two or three times a week up to one or two times a day. I think we're, we are talking very low intensity. There is some work coming out which is trying to push it higher intensity, but at this moment in time, I don't believe we need it. Continuous or intervals, I said 40-80% AOP or LOP. Exercise mode is going to be dependent on what you have access to, what you do. It's, it's open to whatever you do, but obviously it can be harder to do certain exercise modes over others with when you have tourniquets and cuffs on. Final thing I briefly want to cover is around this idea of recovery. Okay. So this is using this remote or passive. You can see here we've got tourniquets at the top of the limb. Um, remote application, three or four ischemic reperfusion cycles, so 100% limb occlusive pressure, five minutes on, three to five minutes off, repeated. And we get a release of a, a range of different things um, within the muscle itself, adenosine, nitric oxide, free radicals, and so on. Does it improve recovery? Some early work by Christopher Bevan a long time ago um, for the Olympics 2012 suggested that it did from a training program perspective and if you used it for two by three minutes, I think the work was, and we showed there was some potential there. Um, we then followed it up and tried to take a slightly different approach to it where we looked at a, a muscle damage protocol just to say, well, we're going to induce damage and can we recover quicker from it? We did 100 drop jumps, so we made sure people were eccentrically going through a lot of stress. Um, we have our control group here in the open and BFR in, or a passive BFR in the, in the solid. And you can see the protocol did what it wanted to. We got about 30% reduction in MVC, even at 72 hours hadn't fully recovered. But you can see with the BFR immediately post-exercise, we have a reduction already at 24 hours in forced production capacity and more or less fully recovered at 48 and 72 hours. So we're almost getting 24 hours return earlier with a muscle damage protocol. Same things happens with creatine kinase. We're getting less damage to the tissue um, compared to the control group. Lots of arguments about creatine kinase and what it actually tells us. Um, and then pain, visual analog scale, just how, how we're feeling pain-wise. Again, with less damage occurring. We're in less pain with the BFR group again. So we seem to be seeing earlier recovery with this BFR passive protocol. Um, we have repeated that and actually tried to look at it. What if we do that before exercise? Um, which, if I'm honest, isn't really a practical aspect because it's one of these things you're trying to recover before you start exercising. It's a little bit intuitive, strange. But we wanted to look and say, well, what's one day IPC? And then we also looked at this idea of if we do repeated measures because we've done some recent work where if we repeat passive applications, we actually get an adaptation to the muscle. We get increased muscle oxidative capacity and other things just by sitting passively with the cuff on. Okay? Um, sham condition, pretty similar again as what we've seen before. One day IPC, we get an earlier recovery, and then if we do three days, we're seeing even greater protection. And again, so we can almost do it repeated, and it offers up some protection and some adaptation within the muscle itself. Okay. Again, this has been widely used within elite settings at the minute. Um, if I'm going to be totally honest, I think probably a little bit too early from an adaptation perspective, or from a, an adoption perspective. I think there's a lot more we need to know and we need to understand. But people are using it. We're aware of some of the NFL teams and NBA teams who've got their own in-house data, and they're really convinced by it. Um, and this is where these conversations have to happen between us and practitioners and so on to try and develop and drive these questions and trying to, to find out some of the answers. I'm not the type of person who thinks that you should just a 
play everything in without ever knowing what's happening. At the same time, there's stuff that you guys are seeing in practice, which we don't know, and we're trying to you know, convey that message across. So finishing off then, what's the current state of playing future directions? Um, I guess one of the things that we've been really focused on is trying to change what, people's, what people know about BFR. I mean, Chris Brandner, who's over in Australia, did this a good few years ago now, just a survey questionnaire. And we've now recently updated this. It's in review at the minute. And it's just looking at some of the things that people are doing. If we look back to 2015-16, with 115 participants, only about 10%, 11% of people were using things like limb-occlusive pressure and arbitrary pressures. And you can see now, we're about, up to about 80% of people are using that sort of standardizing pressure. So we're getting... We're not trying to do this just because we think this is the way to do it. This is optimizing performance and optimizing adaptations. That's all we're trying to do here. We're trying to make sure people are doing the least pressure for the greatest adaptation. There's no point in putting lots of pressure on if it's not going to create an adaptation. Um, a lot of people are changing the, the equipment they're using because more people have come on the market and there's more opportunities of people um, or different companies on the market as well. So that's going to change the way people's attitudes are and how they actually apply this also. Again, if you see here, just the highlighted things, these are the th ways, and if you look at our consensus statement, this is where we are suggesting everyone should be, and you can start to see that's where people are starting to, to go towards. Um, we will still get lots of people doing random things. Okay? We're in the day and age where people go online, see someone do something fun and exciting, and that's what they do. They then do the same thing with a blood pressure cuff or a tourniquet or whatever. I'm trying to stop things like that happening. Um, I fear there's probably been situations and issues where people have done stupid things, but then they don't go on and tell you afterwards. Um, because, you know, at the end of the day, you are still restricting blood flow. It is safe, especially in people who are healthy, but we need to be careful and we need to make sure that um, we're not just a planet how we want. By all means, experiment. I'm a scientist, that's what we're trying to do. I'm happy to have my mind changed about anything, but we have to be careful about how we do this and we have to make sure that we're not putting anybody at risk. Um, future opportunities, I said, I think the key area at the minute is we have to try and optimize this a bit more for sport. A lot of the, people, a lot of the research that we're doing here is in generally healthy individuals or people who have um, got clinical conditions. Okay? It becomes very, very difficult to obviously do maybe a randomized control trial in a, you know, in a club or whatever, but I think we need to be having more conversations. And we have plenty of conversations with you know, sports teams and organizations, but from you guys' perspective, we can only help you if you come and speak to us and vice versa. You might have ideas, you might have things, and we can help you. To, you know, maybe it won't be publishable, maybe, but actually it will help you answer questions internally about whether things are working. My door is always open if anyone wants to chat about things, a bit of help with regards to how we can answer things and so on for your own organization. And by all means, come and speak to me. But I think we do need to sort of, talking about that research to practice, we need to be better at that and we need to try and get, um, have those conversations a little bit more and organizations like this obviously are, are very helpful in that regard. That's just that paper I mentioned that would be interesting to say if you, if you are thinking about BFR and you haven't done it, it's a good starting point, it gives all the guidelines, how you would set it up, what you would do, safety and other things. It's open access so you can get full access to it um, online. And just thank you to all the collaborators and different people that we've been working with. Coach considerations from the UKSCA. Views and opinions from the world of strength and conditioning.